0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Miradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners with a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. But first, joining us is Sam Bendet of the Center for Naval Analyses. He's also a fellow at the Center for a New American Security. He is part of the Crack Russia team at CNA and one of the world's leading experts on the Russian military and unmanned systems. Sam, welcome back. Hope you had a great weekend and never a dull moment.
1: Great to be back, Rago. Uh,
0: And before we get started, today's program is brought to you by HII. HII is one of the largest artificial intelligence and machine learning federal contractors to the U.S. government. HII delivering hard stuff done right. Uh, Sam, it's been a week since uh, Ukraine's uh, suspected attack uh, on uh, UAV attack on uh, Moscow. Uh, what's the impact been in the week since, right? At first, uh, the Russians minimized it, said it was only eight vehicles. They were shot down, but debris from three of them hit vehicles. At the time, uh, la- uh, on uh, Tuesday, when we spoke uh, last Tuesday, you suggested there were more. Uh, the attack was a bigger attack. And indeed, in the week since, we've also had uh, Ukrainian attacks again in uh, Belgorod, and a couple of other border regions, the Ukrainians saying they didn't do it, that these these were uh, Russian partisan units. Walk us through what this last week has been and what the reaction in the week since has been on that uh, attack on Moscow.
1: Well, it's interesting that we don't have any follow-up details. You indicated that the reaction was muted and it has remained muted. There hasn't been a lot of public discussion about this. The government is trying to downplay this as much as possible. And even the conversation in numerous Russian telegram channels, which are always very vocal, is sort of moving away from that attack to uh, the discussion about countermeasures and um, uh, the discussion about other Um, events that happened in the week. So again, it's not clear exactly who launched it. It's not clear exactly how many UAVs were involved. And the Russian government is trying not to fan the flames of panic and concern by not drawing undue undue attention to it. It's interesting that there's a lot of commentary and we mentioned this last week that some of these drones actually uh, were flown over and penetrated Russia's elite neighborhoods where the most powerful people in Russia live and are supposed to, at least theoretically, remain safe from harm. The fact that they also witnessed Ukrainian drones and videotaped them indicates that really nowhere in the Russian-European part of the country is going to be safe especially when it comes to big cities, especially when it comes to kind of juicy targets like military bases, energy infrastructure facilities. They were, uh, excuse me, um, there were other drone strikes um, across Russia as well and other Ukrainian drones sighted in the Russian territory. It is likely that the Russian government is trying to come up with a policy and an adequate response, but it is also likely that the Russian government is actually shocked that this has happened that the air defenses didn't work as planned, that electronic warfare didn't quite do the job, and that these drones were able to penetrate, essentially, the capital city. That's not to say that the government will not come up with a response later on Mm -hmm. and will not draft its own narrative. But right now, um, there's a lot of sort of silence coming from Kremlin, and that in itself is rather telling.
0: Um, And and what do you make of uh, the uh, uh, shelling uh, right? Russians are blaming Ukraine. Ukraine is saying these are Russian partisan groups that did the shelling in the Belgorod and other sort of border areas. Do they change the dynamic in any way? Because it seems like increasingly the Ukrainians are putting pressure um, on a lot of these Russian communities, enclaves, Moscow, uh, whether or not it was Ukrainians that were involved over the over the Kremlin, right? You You have to be devoting more bandwidth to defense now, don't you?
1: Right. And so there's a, lot of, uh, there's a lot of conflicting information about what is happening in Belgorod. Some um, news uh, channels and some social media channels are reporting that these partisans and the, these guerrilla fighters have captured more villages, that the governor of Belgorod is willing to negotiate with them, that the military is nowhere to be found, that the military is evacuating. A lot of Russian telegram channels are posting um, explanations noting that such Belgorod attack videos and narratives are actually fake that not much is happening. Uh, and so there's a lot of uh, confusion, I think, when it comes to this specific attack. And maybe that's a goal in and of itself, to confuse the Russian public, to confuse the government, and others maybe serve as a, as a distraction of sorts to Ukraine's other military actions. Perhaps it's some some kind of feint meant to draw Russian interior forces as well as military away from other key um, battle areas for a subsequent Ukrainian strike. I don't have a lot of information. I'm trying to follow it on social media as well. Right. And there's just a lot of competing information right now. But uh what is happening something is happening there. Exactly what is happening is unclear.
0: Uh, and I should point out right that there was even some speculation that this was these were Russian artillery shells that ended up in the wrong place. Uh right so it's it's kind of hard to tell what's going on. Um ultimately, at this point. I mean, had you heard that report as well? Uh, I've seen evidence of, um,
1: I guess, uh, on social media of different uh, different explanations for, for what is happening. Um, one explanation obviously points, the Russian explanation points to uh, Ukrainians. Uh, uh, some explanations point to the Russians. Other explanations point to some kind of foreign involvement. Um, there are maps out there of captured villages and the area under the control of this Belgorod army uh, expanding. But again, it's not exactly clear what's happening because there's a lot of um, a lot of competing narrative right now right about the actual facts. it's it's very difficult for me at least to, to make any definitive conclusions.
0: Um, let me uh, take you, you know you you mentioned, Uh, I want to get to the air and missile defense question uh, in a moment, because obviously Vladimir Zelensky is calling for more air and missile defenses, as we discussed also on yesterday's show. Um, uh, Our mutual uh, pugnacious uh, uh, person of interest, the Evgeny Prigozhin, uh, the CEO of the uh, Wagner Mercenary and Penal Group, uh, is uh, now saying and, and accusing Russian forces of mining the path of his troops. Uh, to put this charitably, whiskey, tango, foxtrot, Sam.
1: Well, again, uh, he uh, has been very vocal. He's been very public in his criticism of the MLD. He clearly has his own patronage networks, and clearly they're still favor with the Kremlin. Otherwise, he would not be talking the way he talked for so long. It is unclear what specific purpose he serves, because even if the MLD doesn't like the Wagner Group, uh, these are still fellow Russians who serve in the Wagner group, uh, fellow fellow Russian men. So why would the MLD line the path with mines and explosives that would kill these people? So, again, some of what he says must be taken not with a pinch of salt, but probably with an entire teaspoon.
0: Um, there's a lot that just he a said. teaspoon. You're not yeah. even going to give him the bag of salt. OK, yeah. <laughs> well,
1: I'm saying, you know, teaspoon of salt is quite enough. But the point is, uh, he has influence and he is useful. To what extent he will continue to be useful remains to be seen. But he clearly has, again, his, he has his own support within the elites and within within Kremlin as well. He, uh, his military force, his um, his private military formations are also active outside of Russia as well. And I think as long as he continues to be useful in one form or shape or another, He will continue to be vocal and he will think that he can say whatever he wants against the MOD. Um, The fact that the Russian president isn't coming to the public defense of the MOD against pre statements is also telling. And there's a lot of analysis that the Russian president would rather have these forces fight it out, uh, thus weakening themselves in the process, as long as they don't turn on the Kremlin proper. And so, again, Prigozhin will continue to talk. He will continue to critique MLD until and unless MLD does something drastic.
0: Um, that's, uh, the, uh, you, you have to just admire uh, the, the, the Stalinist uh, dimensions uh, of that to fully fathom, right? You want the mercenary group fighting the defense minister. They wear each other out. And, and in the middle of this, you're supposed to be prosecuting uh, a war uh, that has gone very badly. Um, right. The uh, Ukrainian president is calling on allies uh, and partners to provide more Patriot uh, capabilities, says he wants 50 of them. It's a little bit unclear if those are launchers or batteries. Uh, as we heard on yesterday's program, uh, there, there aren't even 50 batteries uh, in, in, in the world uh, to help better defend uh, Ukraine against hypersonic uh, weapons. Um, as uh, Kiev prepares its its invasion. He says he wants air superiority. He's going to be getting F 16s to try to help do that. Um, would would that be a game-changing capability if he got that amount of air and missile defenses? I mean, I guess the point is you use a Patriot battery and it covers a large amount of area. That's a lot of Patriot batteries. I mean, that almost puts a a dome over all of all of Ukraine, uh, right? I mean, does he need this capability if he's going to launch his invasion and does not having this capability delay the invasion? Because Ukraine actually has a multiplicity of air and missile defense systems that are actually knitted into a pretty effective defense.
1: Well, I think his request, yeah, his request is a a reflection of uh, the uh, Russian attacks against Ukraine, intensifying of more missiles and more drones flying against Ukraine, almost on a daily basis. And so there is a need to have more advanced weapons to protect the country against these strikes. Uh, The request for many systems is indicative of the dilemma that we discussed before and other analysts have also mentioned, and that is uh, making a choice in providing coverage, whether these um, batteries are going to protect cities that have been under relentless attack from Russian missiles and drones, or they're going to, protect military sites, military bases, and military types of installations. And of course, these Russian strikes are forcing this dilemma on the Ukrainians every day. Where do they dedicate the resources for better protection against such menace? Uh, And that's why he's requesting a large number of these systems. It's not clear to me if uh, that request is going to be fulfilled. Again, you, you just said that there aren't enough of these systems out there. But certainly his request is indicative of a growing and more sophisticated Russian threat.
0: Um, let me uh, take you to uh, the latest uh, in uh, the UAV war. Russia is uh, now starting to flight test uh, a more sophisticated version of the Orion to remind the audience what the Orion is and what the new system is and what's the difference between the two. Right. So,
1: Orion is one of Russia's two medium altitude, long endurance combat and ISR drones. It was developed before the uh, Ukraine invasion. It is supposed to be one of Russia's uh, self basically grown, uh, homegrown rather, domestic technical solutions and a go to UAV for combat and ISR missions to the depths of up to 250 kilometers. Uh, Orions were flown and tested in Syria in very small numbers. Orions proved rather uh, of limited effect in Ukraine because just like the Baraktar these are drones that don't fly very high and don't fly very fast, and therefore they can fall victim to uh, well-organized air defenses. And so Russia did lose a bunch of Orions, and now they're relegated to an ISR role where their advanced cameras and sensors are providing situational awareness and battlefield coverage for air and ground assets, including uh, the drones. Uh, Orion's developer, the Kronstadt Enterprise, has been working on upgrades to Orion called Sirius, a twin engine um, combat UAV that is supposed to fly farther and higher and carry more munitions and missiles than uh, the Orion. And so Sirius was flown tested recently, there are videos of uh of that test flight out on social media it means that the russian military is close to completing state tests and there were claims earlier this year that sirius will go into mass production later this year uh, again its effect in ukraine is yet unknown because ukraine does have a lot of very uh, powerful and very sophisticated air defenses but as a standoff weapon it could be quite useful and maybe not in ukraine but Perhaps in other conflicts. Russia is also banking on carving up some space for its domestic drone industry when it comes to military exports. Obviously, a lot of that hope has been dashed by the war in Ukraine and by the rapid emergence of Iran and Turkey as two countries that provide drone solutions that compete well with the American, Israeli, and Chinese offerings. Sirius perhaps would go into the military first. It remains to be seen if it will be exported. But it does show that at least on a limited scale, Russian defense industry is capable of producing advanced drones. Whether the Russian Russian military needs dozens of them or just a few remains to be seen, we don't know what actual mass production of these drones will look like as the Russian defense industry is still reeling from the sanctions. But again, a, uh, a test flight is an indication that this project is nearing the end and
0: perhaps it will be uh, seen over the skies of Ukraine at some point. Sam, thanks very much for joining us. It's always a pleasure uh, and already looking forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, Fargo. And a word from our sponsors. Bell sponsors our daily podcast, Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage, Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage, and GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. And joining us now, as he does every week, is my good friend Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners to help us take a look at the week ahead and discuss whatever else is on his mind. Byron, and thanks so very much for joining us. Always a pleasure, Bago. Uh, indeed, a pleasure is all mine. Hope you guys uh, had a terrific weekend. We did. Uh, fantastic. All right, now to the main event. Last week, um, there was the Stan- uh, Sanford Bernstein Conference, always a-, a high note, a lot of uh, chief executives uh, in uh, residence, um, and, or I should say in attendance, uh, and you were quibbling with a message that a lot of them were delivering that, that, uh, that you know, everybody dodged a bullet with this budget because there is a 3% defense budget plus up, and you're taking exception to that. Walk us through the math and how big the plus up is, or even if it's a plus up, because up? as we Are discussed you- on Friday's show, it may actually be a decrement.
2: Well, yes, a, cu- a couple of thoughts, Fago. Yeah, you know the Bernstein Strategic Decisions Conference. They attract CEOs from all different sectors of the U.S. industrial base, including um, you know the CEOs of some of the largest defense contractors. And you know, I think most of the CEOs um, referred to this three percent growth in FY '24 that the debt ceiling deal confirmed, but. I really do take exception with that number because what it ignores is <clears throat> the Ukraine supplementals in FY23. And if you just look at what you know what DoD shows in the budget request, um, this is discretionary and mandatory funding. But you know, FY22 you had 796 billion dollars. <throat> that was up 11%. Um, that included a Ukraine supplemental. Then FY23 is 863, so that's up 8%. Um, that includes the Ukraine Supplemental. We don't know what FY24 is going to be, but that number right now is 863, 863.4 billion dollars. So it really, you know, the growth rate is going to depend on the Ukraine Supplemental if you do the simple math, you get 3% with, I don't know, $24, $25 billion supplementum, which is entirely conceivable. It could be more, it could be less. I think it really is going to depend entirely on how Ukraine performs in the long-awaited offensive, uh, I guess this June, maybe even July. But, you know, I, I really do c- contrast this to the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, we had a base budget and an OCO budget, um, overseas contingency operation. A lot of that overseas contingency operation funding really went for force protection. So MRAP vehicles, MOLLE vests, um, armor plate, it, it really didn't impact the large contractors the way these Ukraine supplementals are, where it's really more armor and precision guided weapons. And you know, to kind of just ignore that and say, well, we're up 3%, those numbers are not going to track what these companies actually show from a growth standpoint. So I don't know. I just I just think people ought to be talking about a single number here and not not kind of splitting hairs with a base number and ignoring the Ukraine supplemental because it's very real
0: money for these contractors. Um, but as we discussed on Friday's show, The issue is that this is actually, you know, like the like we were treating we were treating the supplemental like it wasn't adding to the debt, whereas this spending we are adding to the debt, and that is why I believe it's seen uh, as a problem, right? Well, that that we may want to do the Ukrainian part of it, but that we might not want to use this as a catch-all, even if that's what you know, Chairman Reed and and Ranking Member Whipper and everybody else, uh, you know, uh, Chairman Rogers. want to do. Yeah, and Michael, you know, on your Friday show also pointed out, and I would
2: wholeheartedly agree with this, you know, you still have to get through, um, you have to get an appropriations bill before you really start talking about 3% growth, even for the base budget in FY24, because there is a penalty um, for continuing resolutions. And if the House and Senate can't find common ground on what's going to happen with the non-defense part of the budget, um, Defenses once again they it caught up on that. So <clears throat> there are a lot of moving parts here to just say, oh, the budget's going to grow 3%. Well no, it, you know, you've got to include, include you, know, you have to include these Ukraine supplementals. And there's still a question mark about what actually happens uh, with the overall budget, you know, putting aside the Ukraine supplemental question.
0: What are some other uh, things that folks you think should be bearing in mind as we, we you know, because the the street was looking at this as we heard from Iran yesterday right the, the street was looking at this and saying, wow, we thought this might be worse. This is not bad, right? So you know everything is about expectations if your expectation is the ceiling's going to collapse. you know the ceiling doesn't collapse, but you lose your garage, you go, well, the ceiling didn't collapse, right.
2: But I think I, there was there was, you know the, the stocks had a bit of a rally. Um, you know, they, they've done a little bit better since the deal had had been announced and uh, you know made it through the House and Senate. But again, we're really not there yet. And, um, you know, I, the thing I wrote about on Sunday night, it was really kind of keying off something that Lauren Thompson wrote uh, that he said, well, you know, the the sector really dodged a, a bullet with the debt ceiling deal. And I said, well, that's true, but you know, they could also have an artillery shell land on their head if they're not careful. And it really kind of gets back to this, you know, if defense is getting big plus ups, While non-defense discretionary spending is being cut in real or absolute terms, um, pick your number, uh, that's kind of misaligned with what a lot of the public opinion polls say people ought to be spending money on. So it it could prompt more of these attacks on, and I don't agree with some of these, but I'm just saying there's a perceptual issue that's starting to emerge when, you know, 60 Minutes runs a piece on price gouging. When the New Republic runs a piece on why are we buying aircraft carriers, um, you know you can see those kind of of flanking attacks on uh, on the defense budget. That hey, you know you well you're throwing all this money in, a, in an organization that's spending it stupidly. <clears throat> and oh, by the way the contractors are looking, at they're just buying their stock back again. I I don't agree with that uh, characterization, but that is a risk for this sector. Um, if it's seen benefiting while the rest of government spending is being cut. And, um, and you know, that's just something that uh, I think maybe industry needs to speak more loudly about um, and push back on. But they they definitely have to be aware of this and and maybe put up a better show and explain. And the department has to do that, too. Um, the department really has to be on its toes and, of uh, you know, avoid things like the total combat ship again or any other program or, perception that it's it's not using the mon-
0: money that's provided to it in the wisest and best manner. And just to tell everybody, you know, as Michael said on Friday, uh, that uh, it accounts against the debt, not against the deficit, right? And that's uh, right. The, yes. the budgetary yes. mechanics, and Dove talked about that a little bit uh, as, as well. Um, anyway, um, you know, you, you talked about the 60 Minutes uh, piece, uh, and we talked about it a little bit last week uh, as well. You know, there have been many who mutual friends of ours um, and uh, serious thinkers, and I would say um, participants in the defense drama, have argued that it is time for us to think fundamentally differently uh, about where it is we're, we're going. Does this become a driver? I mean, I, I asked the same question, by the way, uh, of. Uh, Secretary James and Secretary Esper, uh, f- you know, uh, former Defense Secretary uh, uh, Dr. Mark uh, Esper, as well as uh, Deborah Lee James, former Air Force Secretary. By the way, Secretary James's view was very much like what you know that that you know we really dodged a bullet. It's good that we got a deal. This could have been a lot worse. Um, but from your standpoint, does this drive truly different thinking? I mean, is it, we're it sort will- of an out of, you know, that the problem is bigger than the amount of money we have. And so we'll get creative, or is this just going to be, um, bleh, as you would say?
2: Well, Vago, you know, it's, as long as we've known each other, I think there's been a um, a perception that, you know, the debt was, the US federal debt was a real problem. It was an overhang um, that the Department of Defense was going to hit this brick wall and You know, people had to think differently about what's being spent, you know, and I'm just looking at numbers, you know, in fiscal year 2016, you had a $596 billion DOD budget. And, you know, here we are talking about $863 billion. So, you know, despite all the concern about debt now, now, of course, you know, we're at a debt to GDP level that is off the charts in many ways. We had a pandemic, you know, and tax cuts and and a whole range of other things to um, thank for that. But here's where we are. And I think maybe maybe we really are at that point where, you know, thinking about what the DOD wants to do over the next five to six years. You know, this isn't just an FY24 issue. This is really about what's going to play out over the next five to 10 years. And can this program as envisioned be? be financed and executed and i do think that we're we're, you know you always one of the 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 foremost dangerous words it's different this time right but people i think really have to start asking that and um you know i wonder if we're not in the same sort of place where we are in the 1970s where um very significant threat environment um, you know, a recession, in U.S. economy questions about its its global leadership, <clears throat> but it was and coming off a of Vietnam War where, you know, public attitudes were uh, we're not we really do want to get involved in this sort of stuff. But <clears throat> it did engender programs like the F sixteen, uh, you know, kind of these concepts of high low mix. Um, Admiral Zumwalt sea control ships, you know. I think the only one that actually got built and, and deployed out of that family of, of ships. The concept was the, the Fig 7 frigate class. But the point on this is so maybe, maybe this really is going to be an accelerant. Um, it's gonna take DOD leadership. I don't th- I really don't think this is something that that can or should be pushed on the DOD from think tanks, outside experts, Congress they're gonna need nudges and help in framing this, but um, it's really gonna be the department that has to come up and look at what are the technologies that are out there? What are, the, what are our current doctrines and what are we looking at? Are there alternatives to some of the programs or record that, that we're pursuing, that, um, you know, that, or that we're thinking about that, that might give us a better bang for the buck? Um, you know, relative to what we're we're currently thinking about developing and spending, so uh, I think we're 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 there. Um, you know, we're going to talk about the week ahead in a second, but I I don't expect him to say anything. But I think it's very interesting and timely, frankly, that <clears throat> someone like uh, the Air Force Chief of Staff uh, General CQ Brown is going to be speaking at. The AFA Mitchell Institute this week. I wouldn't expect him to say anything dramatic or inflammatory, given you know his nomination to be chief of staff. But he's ascending to that position. I expect he'll be you know confirmed at a time when when I think these things are going to really become more front and center in in what the DoD ought to be thinking about. Uh,
0: well, I mean, right. Uh, it was uh, between him uh, and Berger, and both of them uh, were driving. Um, visions of change. Um, You know, you you could argue that in some cases, the sort of change that Berger drove was more significant in some ways, right, getting rid of artillery and tanks and things like that. Uh, Whereas, actually, you know, what what, uh, uh, General Brown has been doing is sort of a fundamentally different transformation, sort of a bigger, full cultural revolution uh, that that he's trying to drive. Um, You were absolutely right, week ahead. Uh, what does the audience need to be tuning into over the course of the next week?
2: Well, the other thing, you know, Center for New American Se- for a New American Security is doing. A, I think it's a two or three day conference, uh, but it's it's a series of standalone events on kind of American power and purpose, and and it looks like there's some pretty good panels there. I know the NATO Secretary General um, and our U.S. Ambassador to NATO are on one panel. Um, you know, I, I just, I have high regard for their work and I'll be looking for for what comes out of those events. There are a couple of things, congressional hearings that aren't necessarily, you know, directly related to defense, but I think of interest. Um, there's a House Science Committee hearing on quantum technology. Uh, it be interesting to see what, what we can kind of glean or learn from that. And I think another one on, on kind of weather data uh, that really pertains to kind of how we had some of these space Startups um, and how data is used. So, those might be of interest. Um, Moog, um, which is a public company, is doing an investor meeting in New York, and you know, I was at one last week that TTM Technologies did. So, it's really good to hear from some of these small to mid-sized contractors about what they're seeing in the sector and and how they're they're kind of positioning in in defense and frankly in non-defense markets too.
0: Byron, always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so very much. And already, uh, as I told uh, Sam earlier in the show, looking forward to having you back on.
2: Look forward to it as always, Vago.